Welcome back to a, another episode of Thinking Critically. Today's guest is Dr. Susanna Harris, who is a recent graduate from the University of North Carolina. And while she was there, she also happened to found an organization by the name of PhD Balance, uh, which is a community creating spaces for academics to learn from shared experiences. Anyway, uh, Susanna, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much, Jonathan. It's, uh, it's really cool to be here. I love the connections that people can make through Twitter. Yeah, I started following you. I'm trying to think. I think I first came across your account a few years ago or a couple of years ago. It was maybe 2018-ish, somewhere in there. And I started following you because you were you know, a science person on Twitter and I wanted to connect with more people in science. I think at the time you only had like you know, a thousand or like 1,200 followers or something like that. And yeah. then it's been crazy to watch your... So I don't know if you had PhD at that time, it was PhD depression mm -hmm. um, before it switched to PhD balance. And I, I don't remember if you actually had founded it yet. Maybe it was just in its infancy and it was you just getting the ball, ball rolling on that. But just to watch the meteoric growth over the years has been uh, remarkable because I think you have like tens of thousands of followers on Twitter now. So you become uh, quite quite popular over the years, which is great because the mission, the mission of PhD balance and everything, it's, it's wonderful. So anyway. Well, yeah. thank you. Yeah. It's yeah. uh it's, it's really cool to talk to somebody who has seen it grow up because it's, it's kind of hard to explain uh, all the way through. Uh, but that's, that's really cool. That makes you feel good. All right. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah. So let's, let's touch on science first. I'm very, very curious to hear, so obviously you just graduated. Uh, congratulations, by the way, uh, your, you. your PhD. And I'm curious as to how you got started in science. Like what, what's the origin story? Where did it all start for you? You know, I, I think it started the way a lot of other people's did where it was, I think mostly my dad encouraging me to always be asking questions. And he actually was a, a high school anatomy physiology teacher for a while. And I remember distinctly in uh, elementary school and high school going in and, and helping him set up for little lab experiments with the students and just kind of understanding that that was a normal way to view the world of, of just through questions and that there would be points where there weren't answers. And so the idea of not having answers didn't really bother me, which I think is really important in science. And I ended up getting a PhD in microbiology. That really stemmed from the fact that I didn't know if I wanted to be, I didn't really want to be a, a medical doctor I didn't think I really wanted to be a veterinarian. I didn't know there were other options, but in high school, I took an AP bio class and one, one week, I think we had two classes on it. We talked about microbiology and bacteria and viruses. And it was just this entire world that was all around me that I had never been able to ask questions about. And the fact that people were out there just on this brand new frontier, a few hundred years old, but uh, what to me appeared like a brand new frontier that that was just super exciting. So that's, that's really where the, the microbiology side kicked in. That's fascinating. And you said your, you said your dad was an A&P, a anatomy and physiology teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You yeah. Think maybe. Okay. So there was some interest in biology perhaps in the family and yeah. 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 He, uh, some of my earliest memories of, of science-y things was uh, digging around in tide pools when we'd go to the West Coast to visit some of my family members. I, I grew up in Iowa, and so anytime we could go to the ocean was just super exciting, uh, and, and poking around and flipping rocks over and seeing kind of what swam out versus what would swim out in the, the creeks where I grew up, uh, and that just idea of 
there being so many different corners to explore. Uh, and, and yeah, I really credit my dad and then a lot of subsequent teachers for encouraging that exploration rather than saying, okay, now list 20 of the things you saw and find out exactly what they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tide pools, I, I personally love the ocean and tide pools are fascinating. They're great, they're great areas to just kind of wade through. I mean, you have to be careful because you've got to watch out for the urchins and other things like that. But I mean, to like all the various different uh, creatures that you find in there, uh, yeah, I, I can, I can see why you were, you were drawn to that. Yeah, that certainly is certainly fascinating. Yeah. So microbiology, I'm, I'm super curious as to what exactly you, um, your research was on within microbiology, like uh, your dissertation work. Yeah, uh, the easiest way to explain it is basically I looked at probiotics for plants. So when we think about probiotics, a lot of people think about yogurt and how you eat these fermented foods, meaning that, um, you know, a lot of these foods like yogurt have living bacteria in them and the bacteria help your gut to stay happy and allow you to take up nutrients and keep you healthy. Uh, plants have the same thing, but they don't have stomachs. And so they uh, benefit from certain types of bacteria living on their roots. And what I was studying specifically was looking at how these good bacteria could be stuck to the roots for longer. And if in a group of bacteria, maybe they'd stay with the plant and have even better effects on its health, its growth, even how many like fruits or vegetables it would produce. It's really, really interesting. Uh, so as far as real world applications for the research, potentially, I'm just curious, uh, could that be used, let's say, and like translated over into maybe like plant science, like agriculture, something of that nature, where, you know, you can figure out how to, so your research with the, pro, uh, the plant probiotics and how to like better care for plants in general, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, what, what was really cool uh, for me is, Getting into grad school, I thought maybe I would want to work on microbes that affect human health more. And so I worked on things like Yersinia pestis, which causes the plague. I worked on the uh, bacterium called Clostridium difficile, which causes C. diff, a really big issue in hospital settings, uh, and found out that it's, it was difficult to study those. There were a lot, of, a lot more rules and regulations. You couldn't just ask questions as quickly. Okay. And I also didn't really want to work with uh, mice. So thinking more about, okay, how could I find something that would still impact human health, but wouldn't require animal experiments and things like that. And so I turned over to more of the agriculture and tech side of things. And what, what is really cool about the project is that I was working on this bacterium Bacillus subtilis. And this particular strain has been used in other settings and other bacilli have been used to help crops grow. It's actually, there's products that are being sold both by small producers, you know, kind of uh, mom and pop shops or people selling stuff on Etsy or farmers markets of like probiotics or good soil with good microbes all the way up to Bayer and BASF are selling these kind of as alternatives to uh, chemicals or, or chemical-based fertilizers. Mm -hmm. And Really, my project was looking at, okay, are the claims that we're making about these things, are those valid or are we overextending ourselves in terms of saying how useful these are? Uh, and so that was, that was really interesting. I felt that was the part of my project that I felt really good about that I was hopefully looking at something, even if I was looking at it in a different setting, I was hopefully looking at something that would end up benefiting humans based on the knowledge we collected. 
That's super fascinating. So what did you find out then? Were, were people overselling their claims? Because that often happens, to, that happens quite, quite a lot, unfortunately, uh, particularly when people go to compete in the marketplace. And obviously they want to be better than their competitors. They have bills to pay. Uh, so people are a bit overzealous sometimes and it doesn't always align with the science. So I'm just curious uh, from what you found, was it, I mean, hopefully it wasn't too egregious. <laughs> You know, I don't think it was too egregious. I think, you know, to what you were saying, um, each company is going to spin it a different way and you're going to always highlight the benefits. You're not going to show off things that aren't quite as promising. And I didn't see any companies or any groups who were lying about anything, which that was actually very nice. That happens too often in research, but rather being kind of selective in what they would say or being selective in which data they would actually uh, do a full analysis of what was so interesting and, and part of the reason that I think science communication is so important is that it was only through talking with other people at conferences or at kind of casual meetings and saying, hey, in our hands, this bacteria doesn't really stay with the plant that long. Are we doing something wrong? And then several people said, actually, no, we've seen that too, but that's not what's reported in the literature. And so we don't really want to dive into why previous literature says one thing and we're finding another thing. Uh, and so that was the I hope that's an ongoing topic. I think that it was something that I pointed out in my dissertation. It's something that comes up in this paper that we're uh, finishing up on publishing. That, you know, the, the claims that are being made is that these bacteria are super beneficial and they're staying with the plant and they're really helping the plants. And that's definitely true in laboratory settings, but whether or not that's fully realized in the fields, I think is still needs a lot more analysis. So when you say it still needs a lot more analysis, do you know of any studies that are actually being done so out in the field? Like I'm assuming that, so you do, you do work in the lab, so dishes, <laughs> et cetera. And then are there actual field studies conducted as well? I'm assuming that people would be doing field studies with this. Yeah, and there have, there have been really good field studies. And basically a, a lot of what they show is that there is a benefit of these microbes that okay. we're, it's not something that this is just a, a snake oil situation. We're putting out these things, people are buying it. Um, but we don't really exactly know why they're helping. We don't know if it's the addition of these bacteria that are changing the whole microbiome or all of the bacteria that are living in the soil. We don't know if it's affecting the plants at the very start or if you have to keep adding it. The biggest contentious piece is that um, one way to measure if your bacteria are there is to put them in the soil and to use genetic markers to see if they're still there. So basically, uh, you choose pieces of the bacteria, bacterial DNA, and you say, okay, this piece of bacterial DNA, the specific sequence is only in the bacterium that we put in there. And so you put it in, check how many uh, of those sequences you get back versus all the sequence you get back. And then at the end of the study, do the same thing. Unfortunately, what a lot of groups are doing is that they're not looking at a specific enough sequence. They're basically saying, okay, how many of this broad group of bacteria are still there? So it would be a bit like, uh, I don't know, trying to, the issue is that there's already a ton of bacteria there. So you can't just say, oh, well, this, this broad group of bacteria are still in the field after six weeks. Well, they were there in the field six weeks before you started the experiment. So um, it would sort of be like adding a bunch of chihuahuas to a, uh, a dog park and then measuring and making sure that there were dogs at the end of your experiment. Uh, so I think, or, or measuring like, oh, are there dogs under 30 pounds? 
you're going to get some chihuahuas, you're going to get some other dogs that were already there. Uh, but uh, there are experiments ongoing. A lot of companies are trying to hone this. The nice thing about competition in companies is they're always trying to be better at their, than their competition. Uh, and so there's a lot of different experimentation going on, whether that's gene genetically manipulating uh, or kind of modifying this specific bacterium or doing a mix of bacteria, which is sort of what my project focus focused on, or even things like adding chemicals along with the bacteria into the soil so that they can keep having a really beneficial effect. So I think that's the good thing about, about biotech is that, you know, you can't, it's pretty bad to just straight up lie to consumers and consumers are, are well informed right now. And so a lot of companies are trying to make sure that they also are able to share the best data. And if a company was able to say, this bacterium helps your plants 10 times as, as well as our competitor, that's something that they really want to work towards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the marketplace breeds competition and innovation, right? So in order to do that, because people do want to outcompete one another. And it's good, it's good to know that, I mean, the transgressions weren't too egregious and that people are, are still trying to communicate uh, information to the best, to the best that the science actually supports. Yeah. Now, I'm really, really curious. I have one more question about your research. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to improve plant, plant health, these uh, plant probiotics and growing conditions, things of that nature. Now, did you find that you actually had to, to use less fertilizer? I don't know if you tested this or not, mm -hmm. or if other people looked at this, uh, because I know that we use a lot of fertilizer as is right now in um, the way conventional farms are run, like large farm operations. And that creates runoff into rivers, and then you get huge dead zones, like for example, in the Gulf of Mexico. So mm -hmm. anything, any sort of tech that we could create in order to lessen the burden on our environment when it comes to a fertilizer standpoint would be just fantastic. And I'm just curious, yeah, I'm curious as to what, what you found or what you know about that in, uh, in this yeah, space. Yeah, absolutely. So my, my particular project didn't focus as much on that, um, but luckily for things like qualifying exams or writing papers, I had, to, I had to learn a lot of it and we collaborated very closely with a, a plant lab. And that is ultimately the purpose of these probiotics is, how can we how can we increase plant health and how can we defend the plants from fungal diseases and insects and you know drought conditions or high salinity things like that without having to create chemical fertilizers which are bad in a couple different ways right they're very energy uh, expensive at the start you can only really make them in places that are designed to produce these fertilizers which make it difficult to get good fertilizer to everywhere in the world, all these different producers. Uh, and then the other side is, is that runoff. And so that's the idea behind using bacteria is that these bacteria are already found in the soil at some level. Um, all of the bacteria that people use, I think, um, the, all of the ones that are commercially available have usually been originally isolated in soil, meaning that these bacteria are already in the soil somewhere. There's something that could be on your food anyway. It's not we're not adding something brand new. And um, what we've been able to see, what other groups have been able to see is that they can see similar trends uh, between giving the plant additional fertilizer versus giving the plant these probiotics, uh, especially as compared to not having any bacteria around them. And in terms of 
how big the plant grows or how big its root structure grows or even its ability to defend itself against uh, things like a fungus, uh, those things can be done with these bacteria rather than having to use some sort of chemical. Really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell why you were interested. I find it interesting and I'm not even in microbiology, but that sounds, uh, that sounds it, it's super fascinating and uh, incredibly valuable research too, uh, just because growing people like, you know, people obviously need to eat, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, we have a growing population and being able to feed this growing population as efficiently as possible. Yes. Um, that's going to be, I mean, that's always kind of been a priority for us over the years, but even, uh, even more so moving forward, just because our population is expanding at such a, uh, I mean, it's growing more and more rapidly as time goes on because we're on an with the log logistic growth curve, we're in the exponential portion. So you get, you know, hopefully we'll, they're just thinking that we're going to taper off around, I don't know, 10 billion or so, maybe a little bit more, but even, even still, I mean, I'm just saying that it's yeah. figuring out how to grow your food is really, really important and more so these days. So fascinating. Thank you. Okay. So at some point throughout your actual PhD degree, you had decided to found uh, at the time pH depression, but now it's PhD balance. Mm -hmm. And I'm just really, really curious to learn about the origin stories of that as well, because I know that that, that there is a, uh, at least in the beginning, it was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it was primarily focused around uh, mental health well-being for graduate students, mm -hmm. um, because you had some struggles yourself with this. So yeah, I'm just really curious to hear uh, how it all began and, and why you decided. It was something that needed to be done. Yeah. Um, well, one of the biggest questions that always comes around is people will ask, if you had known how big it was going to get, would you have started it? And like, absolutely not. Uh, I'm very happy where it is. I, it's, it's been the most, I don't know, fulfilling part of my graduate program for me is like, this was, this was something that I actually could see it impacting people's, you know, day-to-day -day lives. Uh, but when this all started, there was a there were kind of a, a few events that came together at once one of them was that this paper came out in nature biotechnology that was sort of an opinion piece uh but where the had the lead authors had gone and studied uh across like an online survey about two thousand students graduate students majority of whom were phd students um, tried to figure out how many of them were showing signs or symptoms of either depression or anxiety. And the numbers they come out with were somewhere between 30 and 40% of graduate students in the last few weeks were uh, reporting feelings uh, or signs and symptoms that you would track in a doctor's office as being signs of, of moderate to severe depression and anxiety, right? This wasn't just having a hard day or having a hard time. And I saw this and I was like, wow, I wish that I wish that I had known this a year ago because um, so my third year of grad school was really, really difficult. Uh, I've been, I dealt with depression and anxiety for as long as I even knew what it was. Like well before that, uh, looking back, there were signs when I was like five years old and, and it's a lot easier to see it in retrospect. Uh, but my third year of grad school, I failed a really important exam, which really just confirmed to me that I was not supposed to be there. I ended up getting very isolated. Uh, my family was actually living uh, on the other side of the world. My parents were living in Singapore at the time. And, uh, you know, a bunch of, it was kind of the perfect storm for me in my third year of just 
ending up with really terrible mental health and terrible coping skills uh, and feeling very alone in that. So even though I knew something wasn't quite right, I didn't feel like I could tell anybody about it. And I didn't feel like I could work my way out of that hole. It felt like either I need to be better, I need to be good, or I'm not going to be good. There, there didn't feel like there could be this slower process of getting better. And eventually I, I did get out of that um, and it was through kind of a series of decisions, but regardless in, you know, February of my fourth year, when I saw this, I was like, I wish that, I wish this, ex this data existed when I was struggling. And, um, I also looked around a conference and there were a few hundred people there. And I thought maybe there's four other people who would understand how I'm feeling of, you know, going and pretending to be fine all day at lab, but then going home and sitting on the couch and staring at the ceiling for hours. Um, but nobody else, everyone else in that room was successful. They were good. They were fine. And, and realizing that even though I was struggling myself and I had struggled and I knew a lot about mental health, I still looked around a group of people and said, these don't look like depressed people. And that was the impetus for starting this Instagram page called PH Depression because I was a PhD student and I had depression. And this was supposed to be here's a little page where a few of us can share stories and maybe a couple hundred people will get together and as we're going through grad school, support each other and, and just kind of being honest of, hey, this is an experience that I had. Uh, and it very quickly grew uh, and, and very quickly we started sharing, we, it was me at the time, now, now it's a full team, which is amazing, uh, but started sharing stories uh, not just about dealing with depression in grad school, but anxiety, PTSD, um, abusive situations, bipolar, all of these different pieces of mental health, mental illness. And that was, uh, yeah, it grew. We jumped over to Twitter, got a hold of people. It's been a really incredible experience for me in terms of understanding where other people are and how big of a problem this really is uh, around the world for graduate students of feeling like they don't have a support system and, and they have to hide their pretty serious mental health struggles. It's remarkable. So that study that you came across that kind of shocked you, I, I'm pretty shocked by this. I mean, you said 30 to 40% of graduate students have depression or some other form of mental illness or just depression? Um, depression or anxiety. And so basically okay. what they... Uh, the Q, PHQ-9. Uh, so basically, if you go into a doctor's office and you say, you know, I'm kind of anxious or I feel a little bit down, I'm trying to figure this out, a lot of times they'll have you fill out a PHQ-9 specifically for depression. I forget what the analogous one for is anxiety. Um, but you do this and they kind of score you on each question. It's usually in the past two weeks, how often have you felt X? Uh, and so this survey, what was really unique about the survey is that they did this online and they also asked the questions directly. A lot of other surveys ask for self-reporting of, do you experience, have you been diagnosed with depression or do you have depression? This one instead just asked, are you having these experiences and scored the respondent based on that? Um, and it was super surprising to me and I felt like I wish this, I wish that this study had been done before so I could have learned it at the start. Uh, and I like to tell people that a lot of my work is, is fueled by, I'm really excited about scientists. I love a lot of academics. I love 
a lot of research, um, but there's also a very large part that is fueled by, um, I guess just anger, there's a lot of words for it, but what I ended up finding once I started digging into this is that these sorts of studies have been around for decades. Like we know that really? grad students, yeah, yeah, but specifically in the social sciences and not, not grad students in the social sciences, but these papers were published in social science journals and psychology journals. What made this Nature Biotech paper really stand out is that it was published in a predominantly STEM red paper. So even though it wasn't the most rigorous study, even though there's some pieces of how the data were collected where it's not what we would want in, in for instance, it was a, a bit of a selective study in terms of asking for respondents and that it was from all around the world. There's always ways to pick apart different studies, but the thing was that it echoed a lot of previous studies. Um, there's been a ton of internal studies. There's ones that are larger and they all point to 25 to 40% of graduate students dealing with severe depression or anxiety in like a recent time frame. Um, and we've seen studies coming out from, there's a few, there's one that's from an economics department specifically of grad students. There have been uh, wider surveys at different top Boston-based universities uh, that have found again, similar numbers in their cohorts and have looked specifically even at suicidal ideations and found that 10% of graduate students thought about suicide on a regular basis and a percentage of those had an effective plan. And again, just, I felt so ashamed that I also got to that point. Um, and the fact that 10% of the people around me would have at least, you know, understood that, um, I was really upset when I found those numbers and realized that just nobody had told me. And as soon as I started talking to other people and asking them, a lot, a lot of people said, oh yeah, I've dealt with that too, but, or my friend has dealt with that, uh, but it's just not something we really talk about. That is, that is unfortunate. And I think that what I find a little bit alarming is, and I think that this isn't something that is just pervasive, perhaps in academia, but mental health in general, I think people have a hard time talking about it. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised how many people have struggled with mental health uh, after you begin to open up with, with other people about it. Mm -hmm. And that people just don't talk about it enough. And in particularly in academic settings, uh, I mean, it's incredibly stressful. I mean, life, life can be stressful, right, as well. Uh, other settings, even outside of academia, but uh, the environment in general in academia is, is incredibly stressful. And then you have, you are surrounded by brilliant people who generally have minds that are wired a little bit differently. I think that that's fair to say. Yeah. And sometimes when they have uh, their minds wired differently, which allows them to kind of see, see the world uniquely uh, than others, uh, it unfortunately leads to mental health issues like anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder. I know for me and my family, uh, we have depression, anxiety, and bipolar. And I have a little bit of the depression that I deal with from time, time to time myself. Uh, luckily, I didn't get any of the bipolar, but uh, definitely have that. And it's always something that I've been concerned about. And I've had, I, I know in particular, was my, when I was getting my master's degree, so this would be my first year in graduate school, second semester, I had a bit of a nervous breakdown myself and I had to get help. 
And I ended up being on antidepressants probably for, I don't know, I think it was like four, five, six months maybe. Mm -hmm. And then kind of trying to lessen my own workload so that way I could just kind of deal with everything. But I mean, as somebody who has struggled, I I mean, maybe not to the same degree, but I I definitely can relate. And I think that in academia uh, in particular, that it's not something that's regularly talked about. And I think that there are a lot of people who struggle with it. So it's awesome that you started. Thank you. I I feel like too, with um, the current pandemic situation, one of the things that's been really interesting for me to watch uh, and and think about is that as I've been talking about mental health uh, with grad students for the last couple of years, most people are very supportive or at least, you know, it's not, it's not a good thing to, to not support to someone's face, but um, I have, I have been accidentally forwarded emails um, or I've had people who have kindly pulled me aside and just kind of said things like, well, it's hard for everyone or, you know, grad students are, are really lucky and they should just get over these sort of things or, you know, they, why is this a problem? And I think right now with the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of why this is always a problem, that it's not just a grad student specific thing. When you make it so that people don't have a clear future, when you make it so that they are not financially secure, when you take away their structure, often when you take away direction from a boss or any kind of feeling of uh, ability to control their own future or their decisions, there's not a single type of person who is excelling in this situation more than they did beforehand, right? Um, And so it's not just a, oh, these are spoiled kids in academia, in grad school, which also is problematic. There's a ton of older adults. There's people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life. But this isn't specific to grad students of not being able to cope in terms of mental health when they're not supported by their environment. Uh, And so I I do hope that we look at this pandemic situation and say, okay, what is making this so hard? People are isolated. People don't have guidance. They don't have a hopeful outlook and take a hard look at academia and say, you know, maybe this is this kind of feeling, not, not the same situation, but this feeling is pervasive for graduate students. um, And to, to kind of put into practice some means by which to combat those, those feelings. Yeah, I think you hit on a, a really good point there. It's the, the the lack of control, the feeling that you can't have that you don't have any control over the way that your life is unfolding. Uh, that is really, really like sucks the power out of you, it makes you feel powerless. And I could see that if you already had struggled with mental health uh, issues prior to uh, the pandemic, that this has kind of just thrown a real uh, a real curveball, mm-hmm. and that it has made you feel even more out of control uh, or not out of control, but lack, uh, the lack of control over the structure in your life and whatnot, uncertainty about funding, things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to do, I feel like a lot of times, and this is not what I'm hearing you say, I feel like other times people will hear lack of control or wanting to have control as, as being something where they want to be able to predict the entire future or, or mm-hmm. make their own decisions or be their own boss. But really this is about, um, can you have some predictability of the actions that you take and the repercussions for those actions? Or if you are struggling, do you know who you can reach out to and what kind of response you can gain from that? I think that it's that uncertainty of not even being able to make a calculated decision about how to get yourself help 
you know, right now, what happens if you do X, Y, Z? We don't know. In grad school, what happens if you reach out to your department chair and say, I'm really struggling or I'm having issues with my advisor or something like that? It's not clear what will happen with that. And so it, it puts graduate students in an even more difficult position uh, where even when they do need help, they don't necessarily have the means by which to even ask for those resources. Precisely. Yeah. And I mean, I know that for me in particular, you're talking about the, the resources available, what's going to happen, the uncertainty. I had a disagreement when I was going through my master's degree. Um, I ended up getting sick and I had it falling out with my advisor. And then there was a whole, it, it was, it was an absolute mess. And I was trying to, I was trying to maintain a relationship with the advisor and then I was trying to work with the department and it just seemed like I, as a graduate student, like somehow I wasn't, I just didn't feel like I was getting support that I needed. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that this is an uncommon situation. I think that it happens with a lot of graduate students and that's unfortunate. I don't think that that, I think that a graduate student, I mean, they're an employee, they're, they're, they're valuable. Maybe they're not viewed like an employee, but they really should be because of the amount of work that they do. And uh, they should be valued and their voices should be heard at the end of the day. I mean, they're there to do a, do a job. So whether that's so for sure, that's going to be research. Uh, it's probably TA, uh, teaching responsibilities on top of that, grading exams, grading homework assignments, grading labs, things of that nature. And I mean, but they also are there to learn. So they're a bit of a, you know, they're a student still. But it, I mean, at the end of the day, like I said, they should have the support that they need and they should have the resources available and they should feel comfortable. And I know that I didn't entirely feel that when I went through my ordeal with my department and it should be, it should be there. And it's great that, you know, with your platform, you know, with the mental health stuff, cause I don't know to what degree departments actually have things in place to deal with that, but it's, it's wonderful to have the PhD balance some sort of resource where graduate students can come together and essentially crowdsource support as yeah. they as they go through the program, particularly That's, with the PhDs, because the PhD is, you know, if you're going straight from a bachelor's, it's a six-year program. Um, even after you know after a master's, it's an additional four to five years, depending on how quickly you work, how slow you work, et cetera. But it's it's not a quick process. <laughs> it takes a while. So, mm-hmm. as you know, as you know firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. That's, that's certainly the aim of what we're, what we're trying to do is, is do that crowdsourcing. And, and to your point of, you know, what are, what are departments doing to support mental health or wellness or balance? It totally depends by the department. Um, not even just across universities, but departments within one university. I went to UNC Chapel Hill and there were some departments that were amazing, super supportive, had very clear guidelines of what is and isn't acceptable from PIs, like advisors, to students, to all these other things, and other departments that it was a a free-for-all. And unfortunately, when you have a a total lack of accountability, some people are going to just choose to be selfish for their own reasons, that you're going to have some advisors who don't see their graduate students as trainees or as apprentices. They see them as very cheap labor um, that they don't have to treat any specific way. Uh, and so I think that that is, I get asked a lot of what, what do universities need to do? And I think that they need to give agency and guidelines to their graduate students and there need to be 
very clear rules and repercussions for breaking them. Um, because I, I know a lot of people, I mean, people will come directly to me and say, I'm having this issue with my advisor. I've talked to my dean of students or I've talked to my director or my department head and they've basically said there's nothing they can do and and I've or I've told someone else and they've said to report it but if I do that nothing is going to happen and it's really unfortunate because people outside of the situation almost can't fathom that you know if you're in a in a workplace environment the HR department is not <laughs> Uh, not fantastic, generally. I, I've not heard very many people who say their their human resource department is just stunningly useful. Um, but it exists, and they know the rules, and they know what they can do. Uh, and I haven't heard a lot of stories about where tenured professors who have found have been found to be emotionally abusive, have been found to really traumatize their students, have any repercussions. Um, because what can they do? What can a university do if seven students come to them and say, this person is making me want to quit grad school, but more than that, they're making me feel terrible and they're asking me to do things that are not in my contract and they're telling me if I don't do them that I will get kicked out of the university or I'll get sent back to my home country. We hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, very few universities have an answer to that question. And Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of advisors would ever do these things, but the truth is, is that students see those handful of bad actors and of course feel like they don't have the agency to go and get help for smaller things because it's just not this feeling of if I reach out, I'll actually get that support. Yeah, that's, un that's unfortunate. And I mean, like you said, I can't speak for, uh, I'm sure I can only speak about my experience with my department and mm -hmm. Uh, the experience is going to be different for graduate students across different departments. And hopefully, you know, as time goes on, that you know, people will become more rare, more aware or the graduate or the graduate departments will, you know, start to listen to the actual graduate students and what they're saying and taking the feedback into account and begin to improve. Um, those are for the ones that need, need like a lot of improvement. As you said, you've experienced some departments that are doing a phenomenal job, which is great, which is wonderful. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> and so it'll be interesting to see what happens, I suppose, um, as things move forward. And I know, so you made a comment there, what does, what, do, what does a graduate student do when you have an advisor that, or, or maybe perhaps what does, the, what does the university do when you have, you are dealt with this faculty member that's probably tenured, right? So you have a tenured faculty member and they're just abusive to their student, their, to their graduate students. And they have money available, so they're able to pull in students still and then students because they get involved and they don't know where else to go. They put in, they have you know, that sunk cost bias. I put in so mm -hmm. much time. I do not want to try to go somewhere else. If I go to the university, the university is not going to do anything. I mean, what would you tell students that are in that scenario? Because that sounds like a really, it almost sounds like somebody who's in, um, if you're talking about like personal relationships, somebody that's in a, an abusive relationship. I mean, that's what it sounds like. It would be mm -hmm. an abusive relationship between the graduate student and then the advisor. I guess, what would you tell somebody stuck in that scenario? Yeah, I mean, it can be an extremely emotionally abusive situation. Um, you know, that, again, I was very fortunate. We get a lot of stories. Um, I've seen situations like this happen firsthand with, with friends. Um, 
I guess there's two things. One is to find advocates. Um, so find people who are going to support you. Find people that you can lean on, and not just in terms of who are going to be there to listen to you, but also find somebody in the university who's at a higher level, probably outside of your department, because there is just so much bureaucracy. Um, but if it's in the, the graduate student office, the grad school, if it's, um, you know, a lot of universities have something called ombuds, which their, their main role is to deal with conflicts. Uh, if you're a, a woman or LGBTQ, uh, so a sexual gender minority or, all of these different uh, kind of intersecting, I don't know, just identifiers for yourself. There's oftentimes a lot of folks in those offices and in those areas who have dedicated their lives to supporting students. They're there in their roles because they want to see students succeed. Uh, and so I would say the first step would be to find an ally, find somebody there who you can keep apprised of the situation and is going to help you keep going. And it's also gonna give you some reality checks of, uh, I think that as somebody with depression and anxiety, uh, there's a lot of times where I question if my projected feelings are valid or if it's something that I'm making up of like, they're being unfair to me. Okay, is that is that real or is it not? Or the opposite usually happens more of like, well, I deserve this. Um, and, and somebody, an ally is gonna be able to say, this is not how you should be treated. This is not appropriate for an adult person to treat you. This is, these are the actions of a child, not somebody who is 55 years old and in charge of 10 people's careers. Um, but finding somebody who, who has the agency to stand up for you. Um, and, you know, the other big thing is to keep track of the situations. Uh, do so in some form of communication or a journal. Um, journaling can be really helpful to you it, just in general, but it is good to when people are going through kind of traumatic experiences, whether they're just, and I say just meaning like not in addition to, not, not that they're simple, but if it's, if it's just mental health issues on your own that's not being contributed by outside forces or abuse, it's good to have that as record when you talk to people, um, or if there are situations where you're in this really bad situation, to just have a record of that. More and more often, I hear folks where if you go in and you say, you know, I'm, I've been, I've gotten in this difficult situation with my advisor or my program or things like that. If you can give examples of this is how I was treated or this is what was said, uh, it's a lot easier for folks to take action. But I would say you know, keep track of things, find allies. And then lastly, find somebody to just emotionally help support you. These can be friends, family. Um, I have a therapist and I've seen her for years now. She is uh, just a huge part of my graduate success. Uh, but even things like yoga instructors or pastors and, and faith leaders, um, somebody who has dedicated their time to want to support others in that way. There's there's often a lot of low cost ways to, to find support. And it's so important to have support outside of graduate school. It's all, it's all great advice. And I hope that for those who are tuning in and struggling with some of these things uh, yourself, that you, know, you seriously take this to heart and you, know, you perhaps uh, take some of these steps because uh, at the end of the day, in order to get through the degree, you actually, you know, you're going to have to 
work really hard, but at the same time, um, maintain composure, uh, put in the work and get it done. But anyway, um, so yeah, thank you for that. I, there were a number of things there that I, I haven't even thought of myself. I, know, I just so. like hardcore yeah. monologued. Uh, yeah. It's it's funny. I thought when I graduated, maybe I would, uh, there was a concern that I would suddenly be like, all right, done with that. I'm walking away, <laughs> you know, good luck to everyone. And it's actually, yeah. it's turned out to be the opposite way where I get to, I've had a little bit of a break and I, and I feel so much better. I feel so much better having graduated because now if I have something stressful, it's, or if I miss a deadline or I mess up an email to somebody, it's just a bad day or it might mess up my week, but it's not putting five to six years of, of work into, in jeopardy. And I have an expectation of what kind of work goes in and, and what kind of success comes out of it. So even though I graduated into a pandemic, you know, we were scheduling my defense date with the understanding that everything would be in person. We only switched to an online private defense about a week in advance. So even though I was graduating into a pandemic, it is still so much less stressful right now. Uh, and just that realization of, it's that kind of frog scenario of where you put a frog into boiling water, it jumps out, you put a frog into lukewarm and it heated up really getting out of that boiling water and being like, oh, that was bad. And it doesn't, <laughs> it truly doesn't need to be quite that bad. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I certainly appreciate the chance to, uh, to go off a bit because it's, it's so important. Um, and, and I think importantly, there's a lot of folks who have really great success stories who, um, had a good advisor or had a good department. And even though it, it's not something like, oh, it took them half the time. So they had a success story. It might take them six years, but they left with an increased passion to do their work or with a, a better understanding or even a better feeling towards academia. That is possible. This isn't something that we're asking people to do. It, it's something that is really possible if folks get the training in it and, and think about the empathetic care towards graduate students and that that really does make graduate students more productive in the end either way. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you think of any situation that somebody's in, if they feel supported, if they feel comfortable, they're going to work better. I mean, <laughs> when you're in a hostile environment, I mean, regardless of any environment, you know, academia or in out in uh, the business realm, uh, any sort of environment, if it's hostile, you're just not, you're not going to be, at, at your best, your stress hormones are gonna be through the roof, you're not gonna be sleeping. Uh, so everything gets kind of just thrown out of wax. So it's super important that people feel comfortable and that they get the support that they need. So, mm -hmm. but that's interesting that you said that, you know, you feel better now <laughs> that everything's passed, even though you graduated into a pandemic. So things are, I think, I think right now, um, at the beginning, the uncertainty with the pandemic, what was going to happen, because people haven't really experienced it. We haven't done anything like this for a hundred years. And so there was a lot of stress in the beginning, but as people kind of adjusted to their new normal, um, it's not ideal, but it's our new normal for the time being. And people are a little bit more relaxed than they used to be. Um, I, yeah, I think it's, it is better than a couple months ago. And I think that just having the ability now to, to understand what coping mechanisms do we still have available and, and which ones do we have to set aside for a little while? I think it's still not the right way to live. Um, but I am, as you have seen on Twitter, a big fan of everyone staying home. Yes, absolutely. Stay home, flatten the curve, wear masks when you go out. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, so I'm just, okay, so 
I'm really curious. So we have the origin story of PhD balance. And then you, as it started to grow, what, when did you decide that, hey, I may need to actually learn a little bit about business? Uh, because I'm assuming in the beginning, you said it was just an Instagram page, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, I'm just going to be posting, you know, on social media, and that's going to be it. You didn't really see anything, maybe anything past that at the time when you first began it, then you oh, saw yeah. it started to just grow. People maybe were reaching out to you, people were subscribing or you know, becoming a follower of the page, going to Twitter, Twitter followers, et cetera. When did you decide that, hey, I should actually learn more about entrepreneurialism and what exactly goes into founding a brand, but not only founding it, but then actually running it and mm-hmm. keep it, keeping the wheels turning, uh, organizing a team, uh, because finding people to run your team is one of the most difficult things that like in any aspect of like whether it comes to a business or sports or perhaps a lab, but just finding the right fit and getting people to meet deadlines, et cetera. I'm so what was that? What was that whole process like for you? Uh, it's certainly been a, a learning curve. Um, yeah, I, I don't have any background in business. This was the first time, I mean, I've never taken a business class. So this was the first time that I've ever really tiptoed into anything akin to it. And actually all of this came from the fact that, so Instagram started growing. We got a couple thousand followers. That was really exciting because I think at the time I had 300 followers, something like that. Um, and so that was cool, but overwhelming. And it was this feeling of like, how many people are seeing this stuff? What, are, what am I doing? Uh, and then had a lot of folks saying these discussions are happening on Twitter. You should hop over to Twitter. And I did not use Twitter at that time. I, I think I had like 180 followers and Twitter was terrifying <laughs> and Twitter's still terrifying. It's still a, a terrifying place. But um, my uh, one of my good friends at the time said, look, you cannot possibly sustain this full Instagram page and this Twitter and be doing your PhD. Like there's a lot of emotional work, but there's also just a lot of time regarding this. And so I started bringing people onto the team. So we had a woman working on Twitter and then I opened it up more and said, okay, I need some editors and some writers because at the time I was doing all the editing. Um, and, and also just sort of decisions about uh, what our mission was and what our vision was. Uh, and, and that decision too, between do we want to be a page that is very likable and shareable or we want to be a page where people engage and get you know, something useful out of it. And, um, you know, that we, we went with that second option um, of, we put a lot of time and effort into a lot of the things we do. We try to make it useful. We try to make it actionable. We try to make sure that when people are posting their stories, that they are posting the story that they want to post. We do some editing with them um, and, and really try to do our due diligence to to represent as best we can the situations that graduate students are, are going through. Um, and so because I had this team around me, I think at that time there were like 10 people, um, I, you know, this is a, a difficult subject matter to go into and, and where a lot of our followers are in a vulnerable situation of, of dealing with mental health issues. And the last thing I wanted was for something to happen where maybe one of my team members posted something and somebody else uh, had uh, a tragic event happen uh, and, and have it come back to us and then have it go on to that team member who posted something. Um, of course, if it's an abusive post, if it's something that's awful, uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's one thing. But 
we're sharing things that are very difficult and it's um so you have to be like extra careful is what you're saying you have to be extra careful yeah, and, and extra even careful. with that yeah you just don't know and so I, I founded it as a company because i wanted to make it an llc which means that ultimately even if it's one of my team members um it it the responsibility falls on me um mm -hmm. and so they wouldn't get sued i would get sued or the company would get sued and then it, legally stuff uh but then because i had an llc it was like oh i should probably figure out how to do business things so it, mm -hmm. it was kind of interesting to hear your your perspective on like oh all these different things happen and i you know it's been two years and i haven't really taken a lot of time to sit down and look at what has all gone on because so much of this work has just been that kind of trajectory of one foot in front of another and pivoting when a new development happens or we need team members or we decide to change our name uh, or whatever like that. So it's, it is cool to look back and see what has happened in the last couple of years. So I know that um, from um, social media, you had made comments or not comments, I should say posts about maybe taking classes at the business school and entrepreneurialism. Did you make a lot of great connections through that? Did you learn a lot? I was just curious how your experience went. With, yeah. uh, with um, so this happened sort of on accident uh, where I was it's always through connections. I was talking to a friend in the same department in microbiology and I said, do you know anyone who does like business who's related to science? I just, I don't really want to go to the business school and just ask for help, but I don't know what to do with a with an LLC and they said oh um, you know this person knows something about it and I talked to them and they said actually there's this really interesting entrepreneurship program um, that I think the applications are open and I checked it the application was due in four days and I luckily had somebody that I said you know could you write me a really quick letter um, and, and my main purpose in applying was actually just so I could get an interview and hopefully use that as a networking opportunity to find some folks who might sit down with me and take a look at, okay, this is what I have as an LLC. Are there ways to make this financially sustainable in terms of running a website and, and doing basic like legal fees, not to live off of, but rather just to kind of keep existing and, and taking care of the, the little fees like that. Um, and I ended up getting an interview and I actually got into this program, which is called the Adams Apprenticeship. Um, and it's been, amazing. I think that the, the biggest piece that I've taken away from it is that there are so many folks who want to help others. Um, and I kind of thought this was an academic thing, or I, I guess I had been told like the nice thing about academia is you have these brilliant people as professors who want to help students grow. And I got into this business program and there's a ton of people out in business who love to help people grow. Uh, and through that, they've been able to give me some guidance. I have a lot of folks to act as mentors and just kind of help me wiggle through all of these different things. It's, it's certainly not, it's certainly not planned. It's, it's definitely a, a week by week sort of situation. Would you say that you're an accidental entrepreneur then? Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, <laughs> I like, I have a company, but I'm not a business person. Um, trying, trying to understand more business, I think is, Business is just reality. I think a lot of academics do business without realizing that that's the the term you put on it. Of like when you're looking for a grant, you're you're looking for funding for your very small lab business. Um, but yes, certainly did not ever 
anticipate that title and, and was sort of recalcitrant to that at first. Where I was like, what, is, what does an entrepreneur even mean? Um, and it just means somebody who goes and is in the beginning parts of a business when it's a little bit wild west, but uh, you have a lot of big ideas and, and you want to figure out if there's a way to make that happen long term. Yeah, and you have to wear a lot of hats in the beginning until you begin to get more <laughs> team members. There's, there's always learning because you have problems constantly pop up here and there and you have to navigate them. But in, in many ways, uh, I don't think it's a whole lot different from as far as the problem navigation goes than what you do during like PhD research because yeah. with PhD research, uh, you're in charge more or less. I mean, you have an advisor or PI who kind of loosely directs you but then you have to go out and you have to make things happen, right? I mean, you have to make it happen for yourself and you have to put the projects together, conduct the research. You're going to run into problems. I mean, constantly, constantly running into problems. You have to figure out how to navigate them, how to solve those problems. And very similar to when you're in the beginning stages of a business, uh, you are just trying to figure everything out. You, ha you have to hold yourself accountable. And you have to be the one that solves these problems. Then you have to go out and find solutions. And yeah. Absolutely. So they, there are definitely some parallels. Obviously, they're not the same, but. Um, yeah, I mean, same situation, different setting, right? It's like the yeah. difference between swimming in, in a river versus the ocean. There's different things you have to keep in mind. And some things are easier and harder. But if you know how to swim in a river, you at least have the basics for swimming in the ocean. Yeah, that, 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 is, that is a good analogy. And uh, I, so what's next, I guess? You know, so you, you, know, you just graduated, you have this wonderful project, PhD Balance. Um, you know, you're growing as a business individual. The job market's not the best right now, but uh, I think I may have seen that you have something perhaps lined up that uh, you have a project, the next project you might be working on. I'm curious yeah. to hear about it. So I... Um... I kind of ended, I, I ended up in a, a great situation to be totally honest. And I think in general, I try to think of that, that way. Like I definitely had some, a lot of times I'm like, I had a great year. This is a fantastic year. And I had some really shitty stuff happen at the start of the year, but the way it is now, I'm, I'm really, I'm really fortunate. Um, so I took a part-time job at a local company. So local being research triangle park here in North Carolina uh, called uh, grant engine and it's really interesting they write small business grants SBIR STTR for biotech startup companies so basically they do academic writing for companies and and they submit grants to the, the federal government and that helps fund businesses I didn't even know that existed uh, and so I'm gonna be I'm doing their marketing which is a lot of especially right now digital media social media mm -hmm. emails virtual conferences um, but it is, it's quite interesting because we've had a few group uh, office meetings, I guess, virtually. And we've talked about as much science as we did in lab meetings, except for we're talking about three to four brand new project every week. And it's evaluating, it's not just, we're reading academic literature. I get to read it because I think it's interesting, but our, our writers are, they read this literature and they're sitting together and saying, is this a fundable project? Is this... Do we believe this data? Do we need to have other controls? What, and they're reviewing these scientific papers and they're deciding how to help companies who are you know, ultimately going to, to change and, and save lives because it's biotech, it's life science, startup companies. 
Um, and so it's really a, a huge passion project for me. I get to do some of the communication. I get to try businessy stuff. Um, my boss is great. I, it's a three-month contract. I hope it gets extended, but even if not, I'm learning so much. Um, and it's cool to work for somebody who is really, really tries to be empathetic. Um, he's a, a kind person in general, but it really struck me uh, one time we had a call and I just did bad time management at the end of the call, I had the scheduled call. I was like, okay, yep, that sounds great. All right, thank you. Okay, bye. You know, and, and not quite not quite that abrupt, but yeah. clearly abrupt because later we talked and he just said, you know, towards the end of the call, he goes, hey, you know, we're just getting to know each other and let me know if this is overstepping, but are you doing okay? Is there, are there any things that I can be doing to better support you? Are you feeling comfortable? Because you just seemed a little bit stressed out at the end of that call and I wanted to make sure there was nothing. And I was like, I don't remember the last time a direct supervisor took time to just ask, I think something's going on. You seem stressed out. Can I help you? You know, I think it's so yeah. assumed in academia that you're going to be stressed out all the time if you ask that all the time. It. Yeah. 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 And, and just deal with it. so I totally love it. Um, it is ironic to me that throughout my PhD, uh, I was sort of told, well, you should shoot for a postdoc position because that's the most stable option and then do this social media online marketing stuff on the side. And, you know, that's the part that's actually getting me a job right now. That's a fairly sustainable job right now. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've had to pivot again, which is that two months ago I was getting enough uh, invitations to talk at universities and at conferences to actually have that be financially sustainable for myself, at least as much as I got paid as a grad student. Uh, and so that was, that was the plan, was to do PhD balance full time and talk about graduate student mental health. COVID happened, everything got canceled and I had to rewrite my resume and look for jobs and I, I found one. Um, but I guess future is I'll, I'll keep working with this company. I'm very excited, I love this company. I know it sounds like I'm constantly repping, which I guess repping them is actually my job now, but, um, <laughs> well, you are in charge of marketing. So yeah. 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 But like, you know, they're, it's like a legitimately cool team to work with and they're actually funding. My boss's whole thing is about funding science that saves lives. And I kind of thought it was bullshit at first. I was like, all right, we found science. Okay. That's a cool, like that makes marketing easier. Um, but we talk about which companies are that that our writers want to prioritize and it really comes down to which companies are going to make a huge impact on human life uh, and and the idea that the work that I, I kind of get to help with is going to fund companies who are going to create you know vision repair instruments or who are going to revolutionize how we treat certain hospital acquired illnesses these different pieces um, that's really, that's really cool. So I, I'm, I'm really happy. Uh, stuff is, is hard. There's a lot of things that are difficult right now, but in terms of career, um, I'm, I'm having a really good time. Well, you sound excited about it. So, I mean, I can just, I can just tell, and, you know, you're very excited, you know, when you talk about it and you smile a lot when you talk about it, it just seems like you're genuinely excited. So I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that other people are happy for you too, because it's always nice. I know personally to you know, be doing something that really kind of resonates with you. Uh, mm -hmm. It's so much easier to go to work every day when you can get up every morning and say, wow, like I get to go do things that I'm excited about. So it sounds like you found something like that. So awesome. Good for you. Congrats. 
Thank you. And the, so you were talking about, you get to fund certain, so you get to read papers, you get to fund certain, is it just you deal with startups then, or is it like established biotechs or is it mostly, uh, so you just, you just do, you just do the writing, correct? You just do like the grant proposals for the, for the actual company? Yeah, yeah. And so luckily, and to be clear, like, I don't have to do the writing. Um, my job is to find the people who need the writing done. Um, and yeah, so if folks have ideas on that one, please let me know. Uh, but, you know, I, I try to bring in folks, but uh, really what it is, is that it's, a, it's usually trials. If it's clinical trials, then it's like phase one, phase two. Um, and interestingly, so the federal government here in the U.S., we work in the U.S., some parts of Europe, Asia, a couple other places, um, kind of depends on, on their funding situations and, and logistical pieces. But uh, what that looks like is that companies will have an innovative technology or a process or something that's going to be uh, commercially viable. Uh, and they'll say, we don't want to sell off part of our company. We don't want to have investors take a certain proportion. We don't want to raise capital that way. So this is non-dilutive funding, meaning that it's truly like an academic grant. It is, you write in for funding and the NIH, the NSF, the DOD, the USDA all have a certain percentage of their annual budget set aside, earmarked, required to go to businesses. Um, the reason for this, actually, this this is something I heard and I was like, oh, this is this is awful. Shouldn't it go to academic stuff? Like, why are businesses making money that they don't have to pay back, right? Like, this is truly a grant. Mm -hmm. um, but things like the company that created the Roomba and the company that created Sonicare, the toothbrush, um, they were funded by SBIRSTTR. And the idea is that the, if these technologies are developed in the US, the tax revenue from them actually ends up being more than the program itself costs to run, um, the SBIR and CTR program. So basically we work with companies who are in the development stage. Um, usually not brand new startups, although that's possible, but it's usually folks who have something that they are confident enough in that they're ready to take it to trials. Um, they're ready to go and apply for a grant for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, even up to a, a low couple of millions, depending on what you're, you're applying for. Um, but so it's, it's companies that already know what product they're trying to, trying to build off of. Uh, but, but still, they're companies that are small enough that $50,000 can go a long way. Um, and that's, that's a cool kind of company to support. Uh, and especially here in RTP where oh, there's a ton of little companies around here. And so many of, you know, so many of them try it out, doesn't go very far, that's okay. But a lot of them have ended up revolutionizing different, different sectors. So it's really all of these different sizes of companies. It's not just small companies. Uh, a lot of times these are sort of like medium companies where they actually have some, they have some product that they're ready to bring to market or they're ready to test out for the market. Uh, but the thing is they don't have the funding that they need to get through clinical trials. Uh, they don't necessarily have the funding they need to take this and bring it to the next level, but they have the technology uh, or, or the idea that they need to test. And so they can actually get, it's called non-dilutive funding, where that means that you're not selling it to uh, 
to any other company, you're not selling it to an investor, you're not giving a certain percentage of your company away in, in exchange for them giving you money, you're actually writing just this grant. And so we get to work with companies who $50,000 is going to make a big deal, um, or a few hundred thousand dollars, or some of these are, are bigger up into the, the low millions. But basically, writing this towards federal grant funding, things like the DOE, the DOD, uh, NIH, NSF, USDA, all of these this alphabet soup, uh, they actually have funds set aside to support small biotech startup businesses and these new ventures because the technologies that come out of them, things like the Roomba or Sonicare, those, the tax revenue that comes from that is actually exceeds the amount of money that it takes to run this program. So it's sort of this investment in U.S. innovation. And so what Grant Engine does is that it's, it's basically like if you've ever written an academic grant and you give it to a panel of people who are supposed to help, help you do it. But instead of, of just doing the review, they actually do the whole process. So, and, and that's where the fun part for me comes in is that we get to see these people come in and say, this is the technology we have. This is the preliminary data. Um, this is what we wanna do with it. And Grant Engine actually sits down and creates truly you know the specific aims page the really the grant thesis um multiple drafts they actually have an external reviewer all of these different pieces and what's really cool is that um because it's a group of scientists there's like 15 people on staff half of them or more have a phd um we've done controlled tests of how many grants get funded uh with and without this process and we found that Grant Engine is able to increase grant acceptance between two and four times, right? Which it's, it's a low acceptance rate on its own, um, but if, if you're twice or four times as likely to get that grant, especially for startup companies who having to wait just even one more cycle for funding can, can put them years behind, uh, it's pretty cool to work with a company that is actually helping these small innovators who are potentially going to make really big differences. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds fascinating. And yeah, having the ability to work with these small companies, and that's really where a lot of the, I see innovation and like real disruption comes from as these are, are the startups where you just have small teams who are just super passionate and they work diligently. Obviously a number of them fail, but then you have them grow and they disrupt the industry. I mean, like Netflix, um, the mm -hmm. Amazon, you know, book, online book sales. And um, it takes a long time to see it, but it's important for them to have money as well, because that is essentially the evolution of our, of our marketplace is, is mm -hmm. happening in, 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 in these particular companies undergoing the, the uh, innovation. So yeah, it's all, that, that's, that's awesome. But anyway, yeah, yeah I, uh, Thank you so much for joining, uh, for joining me this afternoon, Susanna. Everything, everything we talked about has been fascinating. Uh, just real quick though, like if people want to find you on social media, like website, where exactly would they go to learn more about perhaps, you know, what you're doing, perhaps your journey, uh, PhD balance, et cetera. Yeah, uh, I would love to connect with new folks. Um, you know, we met through Twitter and, and it's been really cool to have that connection. And there's so many amazing people on there. Um, my social media is, luckily I use my full name, so it was available everywhere. It's Susanna, S-U-S-A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, the letter L, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. Uh, so that's me on 
Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And then if you need to email me, uh, you can just do SusannaLHarris at gmail.com. I'm fairly responsive, certainly through through Gmail. Uh, But yeah, yeah, if anyone wants to chat about stuff. But if you check out my Instagram or I just started a blog over on my website about this transition from academia to business type things, uh, there's there's quite a lot on there. It's a, sort of a, a personal but public diary. I like the uh, the title, PH Done. Yes. So it was, you had the PH pr- depression originally, but you changed the name to PH uh, Debalance. And I like how you still played off of the word PhD and you're like PhD or PH Done. So I thought it was quite clever, quite clever. It does end. It's amazing. It like, <laughs> it ends and it's good. It's good. Anyway, for those of you that are tuning in, thank you so much. And make sure to check out the show notes because all of the links to Susanna's social media along with PhD Balance will be included. So until next time, take care, everyone. Thinking Critically was brought to you by Grips Visual Marketing. They helped me to bring this podcast to life um, when it was just an idea. So that being said, if you're wanting to do a podcast and in need, don't exactly know where to get started, or perhaps you need some video services, make sure to check them out. You can find their information in the show notes.